Great to see everybody this morning. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We are two-thirds of the way through uh, this book in the Bible. And if you have been following along with us, maybe this is your first time jumping in here in person or, or online with us. But um, Ecclesiastes is one of those books that... Um, you know, we quote a lot. We, you know, even parts of it has made its way just into common language in our culture. You know, like there's a season for everything. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, every, you know, meaningless. That kind of the, some of the things that that the preacher, the the author of Ecclesiastes, gives us has become kind of the way, you know, things that we know and are familiar with. But um, if you've been going through it with us consistently, maybe you've been reading it, uh, through it on your own. Ecclesiastes can be one of those things because we're familiar with it. We know the name, or if you grew up in church, we know some of the, the phrases and language from it. But you get to this part in it, and it's like, man, I thought this was going to be a funner read. You know what I'm saying? Like, anybody feel that way yet? Like, we're in chapter 8, and it's like, is there anything positive at all in here? Uh, and I just want to say, yes but in two weeks. Okay, so, so the next, so this week and next, we're going through chapters eight and nine, and it's kind of the crescendo of all of the arguments, all of the points, all of the things that the preacher's been saying, uh, leading up to, to just the reality that life as he sees it, okay, as he's looking around, kind of surveying the land and surveying reality and life, that it's just hard, that it's just tough. And that things don't make sense and that the things that we want, we get, and then it doesn't pay off. And the things that we want, that we don't get, we see other people benefiting from it, whether that's you know, wealth or whether that's positions of influence or whether that's whatever it is in life, right? We've, it's just this continual cycle all through Ecclesiastes that, um, that we know through life experience is just true. It's true. And so uh, I, I want to just uh, say welcome to church. All right. It does get better. Okay. But, but uh, we're going to go through these next two weeks. And what we're going to look at is kind of a, a vision of life as, as the, the preacher, the, the, the author of Ecclesiastes see, sees it. Uh, kind of a vision, something to work towards or uh, kind of the way things are and, and kind of motivations and desires. And so let me, let me pray for us and then we'll jump into the sermon today. Jesus, thank you uh, for all that you've done, uh, that by your, your life, by your death, paying the penalty for our sin, by your resurrection, conquering our ultimate enemy, death, uh, you have made it possible for us to be called children of God, uh, that, that you have made us co-heirs with you, that all of the, the good things the Father has for you, uh, you make possible for us through your life, your death, and your resurrection. So as we open your word today, speak to us, and may we leave here in more faith and trust in you than when we came in. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Has GPS ever steered you wrong? Yeah, especially early days. Anybody remember like early days of GPS? Anybody remember a TomTom? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, we know. Anybody still today, you're like, guys, we're whatever, decades into GPS, we're decades into smartphones, and anybody still gets steered wrong by GPS? You type it in. There's this miraculous thing that happens, um, and I think it has to be the enemy of God working against us, that anytime we travel anywhere, my Google Maps and my wife's Google Maps will almost always say different things. Directions, time, traffic patterns, things like that. Anybody else ever dealt with anything like this before? 
All right, any, anybody um, ever, you're somewhere, maybe you're in a new city or in a new town, you're in a new part of town, and you're like, how do I get out of here? And you open Google Maps, and for a second, you survey it, and you think, okay, maybe I don't need to type in the address. I'll just look at it and figure out where I am from here. Anybody ever do that? Still treat it like an old school map before, like 30 seconds later, you type in where you're trying to go? See, what we get today is, with, with uh, Ecclesiastes chapters 8 and 9, it's kind of, we're doing kind of a two-part mini-series within the series at large. Uh, what, the, what the preacher gives us, the author of Ecclesiastes, kind of gives us the blue dot on the map. Like when you first open GPS and you see the blue dot, but there's no directions. You just kind of get the names of the streets and buildings, the bird's eye view, uh, but you're, you don't really know where to go. It's just kind of life as he sees it. And like I said a minute ago, it's the same kind of themes through the book. He focuses on a little bit more on one theme we'll talk about in a second. Um, but what I'm hoping to do is, is that, that to kind of see what the picture the preacher gives us. But then I hope that, that we can see uh, with the revelation that we've been given through Jesus that there's a vision that comes with directions and comes with warnings against one-way streets that it's telling you to turn down and, and comes with traffic patterns. Maybe if there's a, a wreck ahead or, or, or something, you know, you can take a faster route. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a formula to a better life or an easier life, but it's a vision for life that actually leads to peace and fulfillment. See, the, the themes that we were, we're going to talk about today, the one theme specifically um, as we've talked about before, but I love the way he opens. He kind of sets chapter 8 with like a real sarcastic tone, okay? Because think about everything we've learned about how wisdom is meaningless, all of the things he's gained in life. He set his mind to, to, to learn everything he could. He built all these things. He, he got everything his life he could ever want in life, and it's all meaningless. And then he says, who's like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom, can't you just hear the sarcasm dripping right here? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Right? This is the same guy who just the chapter before said that wisdom was absolutely pointless and that trying to find things out doesn't matter. Okay? And, and I say it sarcastic because, because he gets into, a, 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 well, I talk about a vision for life. Okay? We all kind of have a vision for life, for our life, whether we know it or not. Um, because the vision for life that we have is determined by what keeps us up at night. Like, what's the thing that you want so badly that it keeps you up at night? Like, what's that thing that you desire and you want so bad that, like, whenever you have a little bit of brain space or you're not thinking about anything, it's that you find yourself daydreaming about? See, th those desires, the things that we want, develop for us a vision of life because it's trying to get us from point A to point B. It's like, like whenever you're playing like toy trains or Hot Wheels or something, you're putting one track in front of the other for the end goal, right? That's what our desires do. Desires aren't, aren't necessarily bad, but what happens is oftentimes our strongest desires overpower our deepest desires, right? Our, our strongest desires are the things that become like obsessive to us, that dominate our mental space. But when, when our strongest desires outweigh our deepest desires, James' warning uh, in, in James chapter 4 comes true. It says, what causes, he says, the, the literal translation, what causes wars 
and armed battles and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, and so you kill. See, that's, that's where this, this obsessive desire can be, seem like a good thing. But see, I love Gary Brashears. He says, he says, your strongest desire and your deepest desire are not the same thing. See, our deepest desires as human beings created in God's image is what we just sing about. We are, I, we are now called children of God and we know our Heavenly Father who's created us and sustains us and gives us and offers us fulfillment and life and peace. But when our strongest desires outweigh our deepest desires, it's where we fall into the lies of our age, lies of self-actualization, lies of self-interest and self-promotion, lies that, that tell us that, hey, did God really say that? You know, you actually, you could actually be like God when the deepest desire is to be with God where he already said, hey, I've made you like me. But our deepest desires get outweighed by our strong desires. Our deepest desires are those inner things that, that lead us and, and we want to have trusting relationships, safety, security, having enough to survive. And we know, right, like if we step back and look at things and, and take check those of us who, who, who believe in God, trust the, the word of God, and are building a life on that, we know that, that those things can only be found in God. But when those strongest desires overtake our deepest desires, that's when we start thinking, yeah, I, I, I want all of that. I want fulfillment. I want peace. I want freedom. And to do that, I need God and blank. Like, I need God and this, right? I need God and money. I need God and my family. I need God and my kids. I need God and my job or God and popularity. I need God and acceptance from those around me. And not that any of those things are bad, but when we think to be fulfilled and to live a life of fulfillment, we think that we need God and to be married, right? We, we start thinking if I had blank, then I would be able to rest See, our desires, what they do, they develop a vision for our life. It helps us set goals to strive for, and goals are not bad. They're not bad, but they're a means to an end, and they shouldn't define our happiness and joy in life. And they help us answer the question, what do you want? That's not a bad thing. It's not bad to know how to answer that question. But that vision, the vision for our life, that, that, that when all is said and done in our earthly life, that legacy we leave behind, can we say what Paul said at the end of Acts chapter 19 where he says, I have fulfilled the heavenly vision that God has given me. See, my, my, my hope for us is to be able to look today at these next 17 verses and realize that there is actually a better way to life in what God has provided for us in Jesus than what the preacher is trying to warn us against. Okay, so, so I'm gonna read verses 2 through 15, all right? So stay with me, stay with me here. If, if this is a time to turn your brain off, this is not it. If you're gonna listen to either me or the Bible, listen to the Bible, okay? So let me read through these. And let me just say too, as we get into Ecclesiastes, it's like Ecclesiastes is really hard to preach from. Um, there's like a few 
this is Bible nerd stuff. This is when you can turn your brain off if you want to. There's like a few parts in the Bible where the, the ancient language, Hebrew, is so difficult to translate into modern day English that like no one agrees. This is one of those. Okay, so like if, if, if you're reading stuff and you're like, ah, like this is tough, just know everyone for 2,000 years has agreed with that. Okay, so let me just say this. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Since no one knows the future, who can tell someone else what's to come? As no one has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the time of their death. And no one is charged, just as no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw, and as I applied my mind to know everything done under the sun. See, there's a time when a man lords it, meaning authority, over others to his own hurt. And then too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this, and this too is meaningless." When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. And there's something else meaningless that occurs on the earth, just in case you are still got a smile on your face. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. To This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of life God has given them under the sun. So here we have what I think is the preacher reflecting. Okay, so most people think that uh, Solomon is the author of this book. Uh, Anyone who doesn't think that typically thinks it's a later king who's kind of reflecting and and looking back on the the history of their ancestors and and kind of reflecting on uh, the reality of being the king and being able to do whatever you want. See, See, Solomon was kind of the prototype for the government leader for Israel. Okay, he was the son of David. David was the prototype for a man of God for Israel. Solomon was the prototype for a king of Israel because talk about like economic, like boosting the economy was never better. Their military was never stronger, right? Their their country had never had more world recognition or political prowess in their time. Solomon was the guy who, who led them into that with his wisdom, and then he established the temple. God's glory fell, and and like it was like Solomon. It's never going to get better than this. But what's funny is as he's reflecting here, he's talking about himself as the king, like being someone who can't relate to anybody else. Did you catch that? Like he never really said anything positive about the king there. It's all basically saying like, hey, even the best of us are still going to mess up, right? Because, Because here we have the themes of like power and justice summed up under the same issue, and what it ultimately is, is as, as Solomon is reflecting on 
the idea of God's people having a king, it's got to feel a little weird because that was never the plan. Right? God made provision in his law for his people to give a king, but in that provision he also gave warning and he said, hey, if the people ask for a king, just know they're rejecting me. Okay? So when people are actively seeking a king and an authority outside of God, they're rejecting me and here's what's going to happen. It's going to go poorly because essentially summed up, humans weren't made to carry the authority of God. And so what I think is happening here in these verses is that as Solomon is reflecting on the reality of being a king, he's reflecting on when, when Samuel came to God and he repented and he said, God, they want a king. What do I do? And God said, no, no, no. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Because the, Israels, the Israelites, when they asked for a king, they had given into the idolatry of having a human ruler over them. They'd given into the idolatry of government. They thought that in order to be successful and fulfilled and relevant, that they needed God and government, that they needed God and country, that they needed God and king. And God said that this was because of idolatry in their heart. See, those first few verses, verses two through five, basically say, hey, it's better to walk away from kings in the courts of politics than to have your opinion known. Like, that is just a word for us coming up into this next election cycle, right? Like, it is better for you to walk away from the king than to make your opinion known, okay? Like, like a commentator, he, he talks about why power and influence never ends well for humans and why this should be kind of the default for us. And I love the way he said it. He said, power does not always reveal itself to us in its terrifying aspect, but often in its more seductive aspect, Right, I remember in third grade running for, for class president, and, um, and I made very reasonable promises to, to the, my constituents. Like, I was like, hey, I, like, I don't really know what, you know, I was like, you know, the teachers had to nominate somebody, and they were like, hey, Matt, you should run for our class. And I was like, okay. And they were like, so what are you going to do? And I was like, I, you know, if I win, maybe we'll have an ice cream party or whatever, but... My girlfriend was running for another class at the time, third grade, and she made the most outrageous promises. I mean, she said she was going to lengthen recess. She said we were going to be able to sit wherever we wanted in the lunchroom, that we didn't have to sit with our class. She, you know, it was crazy. And ultimately what happened was we broke up because she won based on lies, okay? Okay, and this is a silly thing, but ultimately it would have been better for me to keep my opinions to myself if I wanted to maintain this relationship, right? Right? Her name was Diamond Grant. We're friends on Facebook now, and it's like, isn't it, isn't it weird, the life? Like, now, you know, you're like running to people you haven't seen in 25 years. And it's, anyways, that's a whole other Ecclesiastes sermon. But the vision that the preacher here is talking about is a vision where the king, right, those in leadership roles in government are given supreme authority in our lives, where, where we think, okay, I will not be able to live a life of happiness in the way I think it should be done unless they are in charge of my country, unless they are in charge of my life. And the fallout of what that looks like when humans are made to be idols, that's what we see here, right? What, what ultimately happens is that, that 
because there's so much you scratch my back, I scratch yours, that, that people who need to be sentenced don't get sentenced, that people who need to be given what, what wickedness is due ends up getting what righteousness is due and vice versa, right? It's when we fall prey to political idolatry. Uh, Tim Keller, if you haven't read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, it's a short book, and it, it is just an absolutely scathing, brutal heart exercise that uproots and exposes all kind of idols in your life. But one of them specifically he talks about, and it kind of came from a pastoral heart for him, being a pastor in, in New York City, uh, where some of the wealthiest, most powerful people uh, you know, rub shoulders together. Uh, he wrote it and he talked about uh, the, the idolatry of power and the idolatry um, of politics. And he kind of gives two uh, signs that we uh, may have been uh, fallen into political idolatry. Okay, so, so the first one is that he says fear becomes the chief characteristic of life. Okay, that, that fear becomes the chief characteristic of life. So here, here's what that looks like. It's when your candidate doesn't win, uh, instead of saying, what a shame, you find yourself saying, like, this is the end, or they're, like, we'll never be able to recover from this. Like, this is the end of America, this is the end of our state, this is the end of life as we know it, because so-and-so won. Uh, when a candidate loses, uh, the constituents openly talk about how they would rather uh, live in a different country and say things like they consider leaving the country. Okay, this is when fear becomes a chief characteristic of life. Uh, when they believe that their uh, policies and leaders aren't in place, then everything will fall apart. Um, and ultimately what it is, it's idolatry because the hope that's to be reserved for God and his sovereignty and his goodness uh, and the gospel of Jesus to overcome evil has been given to a, pr a presidential candidate. The second thing, not only is fear becomes a chief characteristic of life, the second thing is that opponents aren't considered wrong or mistaken, but evil. Right? Like part of this is just convenient because it doesn't leave room for debate or honest conversation. Right? Like, like whenever we say things like, like well, so-and-so, like, like I, I can't believe anybody would vote for them because they're evil and, and wicked. What that does is that it pulls the trump card. And see, both of those things, fear and demonization, they're fallouts of political idolatry in our hearts. Because the Bible, all right, the baseline for our reality and belief, the Bible teaches that sin is the problem and God has provided the answer. But when we say that something other than sin is the root problem for all evil and the answer to our problem is to be found in anything other than God's provision of grace, then we've created an idol to save us and to free us from our fears. See, baseline reality for those who believe in the God of the Bible who believe in God, the Father of heaven and earth, the Lord of everything, is that the whole earth is his. Like, not just some of it. Like, if you just think about that Psalm 24, the opening line, the, the, the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If, if we just repeated that to ourselves every morning when we woke up, every night before we went to bed and throughout the day, think about how drastically that would change the way we approach most of life. Like, if we really believed that that the entire earth and every human, everything, every creature, anything created is God's, how much differently would we approach life in general, much less what we're looking for in a man-made system and structure 
of authority, right? Because those were never made, never intended to guarantee happiness or well-being or have control over our destiny. And if we think that it does, we're delusional and we've bought into the delusion of idolatry. Okay, and so, so this is just something, thinking about this week, like, just to shoot straight with y'all, like, I, I am just not sure, okay? So this is just me personally. I'm not trying to tell you guys what to think on this. I, I think that the role of Christians in politics is super confusing. Like, just personally, it's really hard for me to read the Sermon on the Mount and then think about casting a vote for anyone to be called my leader, okay? Um, like, just where I am in my journey as a, as a student of Scripture and practicing um, my, my theology and following Jesus, like, if you've read any of, like, the very earliest stuff about, like, Anabaptists and the Baptists from, like, the 15 and 1600s in Europe, that's probably where I stand, okay? I'm going to leave it at that because the only people that actually care enough to talk about it will research it, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't want to give where, where, whatever, but um, I don't want to, I don't want to give I don't want to give details here, or I don't want this to be a political sermon in the sense of telling anyone how to vote or, or who's right, okay? Uh, my goal here is to stand up and give us the word of God and help us step back and see reality through the lens that God has given us and catch a vision for life holistically that God really is who he says he is and will do what he said he will do, okay? But let me just say, with this, uh, preparing for this sermon it brought up the first presidential, I got, presidential election that I got to vote in was super confusing for me. So I grew up a uh, small town America where politics was, was very prevalent. Conversation about pro, uh, politics were very prevalent. And it was very clear and explicitly stated that if you're a Christian, you vote for one specific party. That was kind of what I grew up in. Okay, And I'm not here to bash a party or anything. I, I'm just, I think that this story could help resonate with us to help us see and, and connect to what the, the preacher's talking about today. So the first presidential election, you know, I, I, was, I came into it, you know, uh, 20 years old and, um, and was uh, kind of grew up thinking and, and, you know, grew up in a culture where basically if you're looking for like a best friend, a spouse, or a president, they have to be a Christian first, okay? Like that was kind of the baseline, like we need a person who follows Jesus, loves them. So as I'm coming into this presidential election, here we have two candidates. Uh, one, representing a party that uh, in, in the community I grew up in uh, was not the primary, you know, they would say like, I don't know how you could vote for this party and be considered a Christian. Um, and then there's, there's the other party um, that, that primarily would say that in the community and culture I grew up in, they would say like, okay, like this is kind of the, the way that we vote. Okay, but remember the baseline of it was we need a Christian candidate. Okay, well, the party that would say, like, Christians don't vote for this party, there was a Christian outspoken and practicing Christian running for that office. In this party, there was an outspoken, uh, believing and practicing Mormon. And so what was weird was it got to a point where it was so, the conversation was just say, well, it's more nuanced, you know, they're a Mormon, but there's all this good stuff, there's this. You know, and, he, and is he really a Christian? You know, there are all these things. And, and it was really odd because it became clear to me, like I was going into it, is that, that it was more about the party and it was more about winning and it was more about a, a government being ran the way we wanted it to. And, and really those two things that Tim Keller gave earlier, a, a, an environment of fear 
and then demonization, I saw those two things, that those played out. Because if, if, we're not, if we're not called to be straight ticket voters, except we're talking about the kingdom and, and, and identifying and, and hoping to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, it got really murky really quick. Do you see what I'm saying? And so, I, like I said, I'm not, I'm not trying to bash any, any certain political system. What I'm trying to do is expose idols for us. Because in this, this certain election, the party that I was taught that Christians vote for, there was no Christian. Not even the name, right? And, and I know it's about way more than that, and it is very nuanced, but, but the vision for life, the vision for government, the vision for authority for my country was, was that we needed a true, solid Christian to be the most powerful person in the free world in order for God's kingdom to come and be realized. But what was actually playing out was not that at all. It was actually the opposite. It, it, was, it was people that I knew personally that would stand up in pulpits on Sunday morning and preach the God of the Bible was saying and bashing the person who called themselves a Christian while exalting someone of a completely different faith. And that was really confusing for me. That was really confusing because the Bible, history, common sense, what I experienced in that told us and proved to us that like it can't really be done can it like what the preacher is basically saying here is like like power and authority like how close can we actually get before we get burned how close to that sun can we fly before we get burned right humans we can't control the wind much less when they die. Soldiers aren't going to be sent home when there's a war because they don't get to make their call. And there's a God who's in charge and he does not share power and he will not be mocked. Right? That's what he said there. He said, as he goes on, he says that, that, that we have to remember that no one knows the future. Not the king. No one does. And he goes on in, in verse 13 to remind us that yet, the, yet because the wicked don't fear God, it's not going to go well th- with them, right? Another way to say that is, is when we seek to promote our idols and we let those strong desires for control and power and safety and security outweigh our deepest desire to be known and loved by the creator God, then it's not going to go well with us. See, God is love, and we know that that's true, but God won't tolerate a love of sin and a love of self and of corruption. See, a love of power that takes from others' lives for our benefit and gain is a love that God hates. And that's what we see in verses 10 through 14, right? Like, it, like, it does seem like folks who have no desire who, to live with and for God, and they have a vision of life where they don't need God at all, it seems that often they can, they can be the most well-off, the rich, the famous, the powerful, right? They can live a life with no sign of the fruit of their spirit, but they have a lot of fruit of their labor. But in the end, they all have to stand up before God and their works are going to be exposed, just like ours, right? No one gets to make a mockery of God. And so why wouldn't, right? If that's the case, if, if we really can't, as human beings, if we really can't handle power and influence on our own terms, then why, the verse 15 makes total sense, right? Is there really nothing better 
on earth than just to eat, drink, and be happy. Right? Like, ah, you know, we talk about food a lot here, right? I amen to the potluck. I love food. I love food. But you, do you know how long it takes before you're hungry again? Or how long before you're thirsty again? How long before that, that happiness wears off? How many of us have been on vacation this summer already? Any, anybody been on vacation yet? How many of you already feel like you could use another vacation? See, eating, drinking, being merry, vacation life, it's, it's great. It's a good thing. Rest, recover, like do all the things you need to do. But if that's the best we got, right? Like if we're looking at our political system and our government and that's the best of us, like, like, what, like isn't this the best part? Like, like it makes total sense, right? And then verses 16 and 17, when I applied my, my mind to know wisdom and observe the labor that is done on the earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all God had done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite their, their efforts to, to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even the wise claim they know and they can't really understand. Like, can we really have power? Like, does justice actually exist? Can we have wisdom, right? In the midst of this crazy, chaotic world, do good decisions really matter? Like, what if we handle our money well, but the market crashes and we lose it all? What if we do everything right and take care of our bodies and we're as healthy as we can and then we get struck by lightning? Like, what if we do the best we can with, with, with what we have at raising our kids, but then they grow up and still won't have anything to do with us? Like, like, how do we keep from being like this cynical preacher, the sarcastic sage who doesn't have any more answers than we do at the end of the day? Like, really, is, is life, is this all meaningless? Right? It's like opening Google Maps and you have the blue dot, but the rest is blurred out because you don't have service. Right? It just shows you where you are, but it doesn't tell you where you can go. Right? It doesn't tell you that when a car is going to drive by, when it's safe to cross the street. Right? If we put in an address, it gives us a better vision of how to go where we want to be. It can tell you the, mo the fastest, most fuel-efficient way and give you a bunch of options. And Ecclesiastes is the blue dot, but how do we get a better vision for life? How do we capture a better vision for ourselves and what we're putting our hope and our trust in. See, the preacher only has what God's revealed to him at this point, right? He has the law, the prophets, he has nature, all the things that God has chosen to, to reveal himself to this person. But we have the culmination of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, and we have church history, we have the New Testament. We have this word right here that, that ties up the story of the whole Bible with the revelation of John reminding us that in the midst of evil and turmoil, natural disasters and wicked empires and government and authorities that God is still in control and that Jesus is still the king and that he has conquered evil and replaced it with his goodness. So, so, how, do, so how do we recover this vision of life with God under the sun the same sun that sees corruption in the seat of justice and wickedness in the lives of the righteous. Like what address, what destination can we put into the GPS of our souls and hearts and minds to find a true reality where hope is beyond political pundits and corrupt human systems that have never been designed for success or even destined for it? Verse 17, he said, then I saw all that God had done. 
See, our deepest desire is something that only God can give us, a peace that surpasses understanding, a light burden, safety, healing, redemption, seeing God, right? These are our deepest desires. What Marvel Universe is trying to create so badly, we have possible for us because of the purity of heart that we have from God. Right, 1 Corinthians 1, I love it. Paul goes on a rant about wisdom. He goes on a rant about, about justice and the authority. And he says that, that even, even the foolishness of God seems wise, is wiser than, than man's wisdom. Right? We see exactly what God is up to because of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he accomplished. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Paul writes, it's because of him. He says, so it's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, or come from God, wisdom. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So do you want to know how to, if you want to know how to tap in to the desire, to the fulfillment of our strongest desires, let God replace them by fulfilling our deepest desires. The preacher wanted to know how close can we actually get to power, and Jesus says that you can get as close as you want. Right? Because if we believe that everything on earth and in the earth and created is God's and that he's in control, we can get as close to God as we want. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, we are in Christ. Because of God, we are in Christ, engulfed in a life with God through Jesus. The preacher wants to know if justice is actually gonna happen on the earth and Jesus is our righteousness, which is the ability to rightly stand before God and all of the, the requirements of the law fulfilled and it means standing in right standing with other people as we take that goodness to those around us. No wrong on our records and a clean slate because of Jesus. The preacher's asking like, like he wants to know if wisdom's even possible with everything and all that God is doing and Jesus has come for us as wisdom from God. He makes sense of the evil in the world because he shows us what true goodness is, right? He makes sense of injustice because he shows us what the ultimate injustice is by dying the death of sinners and paying the penalty for sin while remaining completely sinless. They couldn't hold a charge against him, right? He makes sense of what to do when we feel worthless and insignificant by redeeming us, giving us eternal purpose and identity. He came to us as our righteousness, Redemption and holiness. Holiness is being set apart for God, being separate and different than the world around us. So as we refocus our lives to that vision, a vision of God's wisdom being made visible in Jesus and given to us, we do our part. That's the holiness part, right? God's done his part by paying the price for our sins, by dying on the cross for us and raising from the grave, conquering our ultimate enemy in death, and so now it's time for us to hold up our end of the deal. It's holiness, right? You read all through the Old Testament, and it would say that I'm, I'm in my Bible reading plan, reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, and it talked about as they reestablished the temple, all the priests and the Levites and all the people of Israel consecrated themselves. That's a set time where you do everything you can to, to repent of sin and allow God to cleanse you from your sin so that you can enter into his presence, it's how we establish rhythms and habits, disciplines and practices in our day to remind us of reality, that the world is God's, not humans, that justice is worth fighting for because we have a God who fought to justify us and that wisdom is attainable as we stop looking around but answer 
to him. I love how Ruth Haley Barton put this. She said, as we stay faithful to the journey into the center of our being where God dwells, we are freed from our bondage to the expectations of others and our own inner compulsions. We are less and less mesmerized by human voices, less and less manipulated by the expectations of others, and more and more given over to God. In our encounters with God, we die not only to the expectations of others, but to ourselves. Our addiction to performing, to looking good and being perfect, to attaining more status than is good for us. Because we are experiencing ourselves to be deeply loved by God, we begin to recognize an inner freedom that is beyond what we ever thought possible. So the question is, can we recover this vision for life that is not God and blank, but it's that God is enough, that his grace is sufficient for us? And the answer is yes, because of what Jesus has done. And so now we have a choice. Like if we can recover the vision, we have a choice. We can hold on to our idols and we can look out and we can outsource our, our sources for safety, happiness, and peace, or we can let Jesus be who he is and do what he does and replace our idols with his presence and goodness. Romans 2.16b, the, the second part of it, says something that, that, that can either be really terrifying or really liberating or a little bit of both. It says that God judges the secrets of mankind according to Jesus. So all the secrets, all the idols that you're hiding to replace your deepest desire with your strongest desire, God's going to reveal those according to who Jesus is and what he's done. That's terrifying to our idols. But it's life and grace and peace for those of us who know that Jesus is worth it. So the action step for this week, let me ask this week, is, as we're looking and we're exposing idols, as we're talking, having conversations with people around us about what we believe in the life that we live, Tim Keller in his book, he says a way to root out your idols is to look at your uncontrollable emotions. Like what's the topic of conversation that people bring up and you feel like it's a personal challenge and affront to your whole being? Right? Like, like, like what are the things that people bring up that, that make you feel instantly combative? And why? Right? Maybe it is a political party, a political system, a political candidate. Maybe it's, maybe it's talking about your family, right? Maybe it's talking about money. Maybe it's talking about your career and somebody telling you, hey, you need to take a day off, you know? What, what's the things that, that bring up uncontrollable emotions, right? Maybe, maybe you're tired of being single, but God hasn't brought you a spouse, right? Maybe you're sick of having a sin in your life that you keep going back to over and over and that uncontrollable emotion of shame and guilt keeps coming up. And let me just say, bring those to God. Rejoice in what Jesus has done for you and who he is and repent of those sins. Let God judge those according to Jesus and be reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take some time this week. Here's your homework. Everybody ready for some homework? Take some time this week to inventory those things that, that, that control your daydreams that make those emotions explode in you and then give them to Jesus. And then do things, put things in your life that remind you of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that, that while we were still sinners, you came and you died for us. 
that you came to close the void and to give us a real vision for life that's not based on human effort, that's not based on perfection, that's not based on, on anything, but God, you gave us a, a vision for life, which is the vision of the garden. God, being with you, being in your presence, walking with you, displaying your, your, your glory, reflecting your glory, unashamed, holy as we are. We know that on our own terms we can't do that. The best we come up with are broken systems, our corruption, our sin, death, division, rivalries, battles and wars, but, but you came to bring peace and you came to give us a new vision for life in your son Jesus. So God, this week, as those things that have taken root in our hearts to be ultimate things, as you, as you expose those to us by your Holy Spirit and we give them to you, God, replace those with a vision of your goodness and glory, your love and your grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.